And most small businesses cannot survive without the key person still working and earning and doing billable hours. And so you can say like right now, okay, based on these two survival tests, one, I'm not charging enough. And two, this company does not survive the minute I stop working. That is a business that is very volatile and is ripe for all kinds of disruption or interruption. Welcome to the Sales Masters Podcast. Here we're going to be interviewing titans of industry, bringing you the hacks, the tips, and tricks from the whole of the world on how you can get more effective in your business. We're going to bring some of the biggest names from across the world to drop their bombs, drop their information, to give you the info you need to thrive in business. We're going to talk about the struggles, we're going to talk about the successes, and everything in between. Welcome, guys, to another episode of the Sales Masters Podcast. And today, I'm really delighted to have the amazing Chris Stowe. How are you, Chris? I'm doing great. Thanks, David. I was looking over at your bio earlier. I never realized you're an Emmy Award winner. Mm-hmm. That's um, straight out of the block. I mean, darn impressive. <laughs> um, Chief Strategist of Blind, founder of Future, the Future, sorry, uh, which mm-hmm. is an online education platform. It's got a mission to teach a billion people how to make a living out of doing what they love. Chairman of the board, um, an advisor to saleshood. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on. I mean, saleshood's uh, flying now, isn't it? I mean, that's been around, is it 2013, 14? Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't know you knew saleshood. Um... I was doing some research. Oh. I was doing some research and I'd heard saleshood, didn't know wow. what it was. And when I started looking into it more, because they've got, I mean, that's all over now, isn't it? It's like 50 countries, I think, when I was looking. And they're spreading. Uh, so here's the thing about saleshood is my my older brother is a co-founder and the founder is, uh, the other co-founder, Eli Cohen, is now like a family friend. So it's really interesting just to kind of get in on the ground level. Mm. Where do you yeah. see that going long term? Is, is there a big sky vision that this is taking over the world? Or is it part of the, the billion uh, person vision you have? It's a little different. Uh, their mission is a little bit different. It's to, it's na- a sales enablement, and they've built an amazing piece of technology, which I think for the right kind of clients, they're opening it up as a learning platform. So I've got my eye on that. So mm. I think there's potentially crossover between what we're doing using other um, learning management systems and potentially using saleshood as the platform. So we're, we're still kind of watching here. And it's a great time now as well with, I think, well, I know from my own side, I have my own online interactive platform, the Ultimate Sales Training Academy. And I, people are now the old generation of sales, if you will, mm-hmm. of just keep doing the same thing over and over again. It'll be all right. Keep hammering the door down. It's just so outdated now. But people that are coming through are used to learning and used to being more self-sufficient as entrepreneurs and solopreneurs. Um, and I, I think it's a definitely a great time where more people are, really used to learning a little bit more, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I think the the ideas of sales and, and, and learning and training are all evolving pretty quickly. And I'm very excited about where this is going. Yeah. I mean, myself as well, because the one thing I love about sales and selling is that when people get into it, there's always the same conversation me and the team ever have. They'll get into it. They'll talk to it. Normally, if solopreneur, entrepreneur, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know about sales. I'm like, yes, we all know about it. In the same way, I've watched 
hundreds of boxing matches. I definitely wouldn't class myself as a heavyweight champ. Um, and it doesn't matter how many fights I watch, getting in the ring and getting punched in the face is very, very different at different levels, right? Uh, and right. If, we, if we put Mayweather um, up in a, a super heavyweight division, the skills are going to be very different because of the body that we've got. Um, and I think there's so much room now for different ways of doing things that people have got the opportunity to find what really suits their personality, which I think beforehand, when I started in sales, there was the, I call it the, the hammer hits the nail, <laughs> just keep swinging where mm -hmm. now there's a lot of different options out there which suit personality types and different things that people are trying to do uh which is very exciting to see so what's your first part of this did you have a gary v story where you were an entrepreneur from a young age um how did you get into to business for yourself absolutely i think thoroughbred entrepreneurs began at a very early age um, it's something part of my history, which isn't that different from Gary Vaynerchuk, is I'm a first generation immigrant. My my parents were, uh, and and myself were refugees from Vietnam. We came to the United States, started really? over, rebuilt. Yeah, so we 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 didn't grow up with a whole lot. Uh, you know, we at first relied on the assistance of uh, kind, other generous human beings and government, and eventually worked our way up. Like my dad's first job in America was a busboy. His last job was the chief engineer at a semiconductor company. Mm. So I went through, uh, I guess, the entire uh, socioeconomic spectrum from living in very lower class, impoverished neighborhoods, um, communities of color, and then going up into the upper middle class neighborhoods and just experiencing that. And throughout all of that, I didn't take anything for granted. Both my parents worked really hard. It was a dual income household. My mom and dad would basically be gone all day. My mom would come home, make dinner for us, and that cycle would just repeat. And so I didn't have a ton of guidance in terms of how to navigate the culture, um, the customs, and it was just trying to figure things out on my own. So part of that was, if I want something in life, I got to go figure out how to go get it. No one was going to say, here's how the system works. Here's how you get a loan. Here's how entrepreneurship works. Here's how you start a business. Now, that doesn't mean that my parents were not supportive. They were most definitely supportive in, in the ways that they could and the ways they knew how. So at the very earliest age, I was like, I was hustling, washing cars. Uh, I have a lot of relatives. And I, I quickly realized, my God, I'm too small to wash these big vans and trucks that they had. <laughs> and it was just too hard. Like washing a car for seven bucks when you're out there for an hour, an hour and a half trying to wash this thing. Log, especially when you're trying to do work. a great job. Yeah, you want to get that repeat business. <laughs> yes. And I've tried a whole bunch of other things trying to do like door to door sales, like in terms of like selling Christmas cards and holiday cards. But I'm too shy. I'm too weird. I'm too self-conscious. And that didn't go anywhere at all. Basically, I got the kit. I relied on my aunt and uncles to sell the cards for me at their office. Right. And that was kind of it. And I collect a prize at the end. And I tried many different things. I sold popsicles, I sold candy, and I had a little stint where I sold weapons. I didn't even know it was illegal. It was in junior high. I, I ordered Ninja Stars because I was into like Very all cool. these grindhouse films, right? Yeah. Nunchucks and Ninja Stars. Who else yeah. doesn't who else doesn't want this? Okay. And sold them in junior high. And then all of a sudden it's like uh, you can't sell weapons. So I had my brother, throwing knives when I was about 40. Throwing knives, yes. I had and someone come to my house and I had a dartboard and I used to Absolutely. love it. Watching those films. And they come in and they looked at me like I was a murderer. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> but everyone likes these, don't they? Like I couldn't get it in my head. I was like, does not everyone like ninja type films? Right. 
So, I mean, I even had the ninja shoes, the split toe shoes, everything. So it was one of these things where you're just trying to live out your fantasy. It wouldn't be that different today than having Thor's hammer or yes. Captain America's shield. I know it sounds strange for people like we're peddling weapons, but and we got in trouble. My brother got suspended from school. So I'm like, okay, don't sell illegal things. I get it. And so I get into selling t-shirts and then I, I, I start to just figure things out. Mm. So when you're at the stage that you're doing the smaller testing the market out and doing the t-shirts yeah. what was the first step for you to go into full-fledged business if you will where it really you, you went on a bigger scale within that was there a certain point where you had the vision were the partnerships was it just you going all at it and creating it from scratch i will tell you the first legitimate business that i had that totally failed and then i'll tell you the one that yes. actually worked great stuff okay. yeah so uh, my my younger brother, he was on the wrestling team and his coach, Rudy, said, doesn't your brother make art and illustrations? How he knows that, I do not know because I kept it mostly to myself. And he said, you should work, uh, tell your brother to go uh, apply for this job with my friend who runs a silk screening shop. And then the, and I go and meet the guy. I have a portfolio and I'm doing air quotes here because it's not a portfolio. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm showing him seven random drawings. And he goes, yeah, okay, you can be an inker. I'm like, great. So the, the guy's name was Brad. And what he did was, this is pre kind of digital design. And this is in the 80s. And so he's drawing with a pencil, hand lettering, beautiful illustrations. And then he would give me acetate, I'd lay over it and then use a, a rapidiograph pen and try to trace over his drawings. Right. Now, I don't know how to hold these pens. I don't know how to use these pens. And my hands are shaky. When he does the demo, it's like, and everything works. Effortless. Like, okay, effortless. And I'm there and he's like, okay, I'm going to go home and you just work and you just bill me and... That's my first real job. And while I was doing that, I realized something. This is hard work. Now, I was making 18 bucks an hour, so it was relatively a lot of money for a person who just doesn't have any real skills. And, and I asked my boss one day, kind of a couple of weeks into working with him, can I just uh, have you print shirts for me and how much are they? And he goes, yeah. So I became his client. And mm -hmm. so then I realized I need to just go out and sell the designs to someone at school and then have him print them. So now okay. I was a broker for the services and that was my first real business. And the reason why it failed was I didn't understand anything about economics, supply, consumer demand and profit margin. So what I did was I sold the shirts thinking uh, the difference between what I sold them for and what I paid for it was profit. Obviously it was not. There was a lot of sweat equity just designing, doing the sales part and fulfillment. And so my mom one day is like, you know, uh, you owe me money. I'm like, what do you mean? In the checking counter, it should be positive. He goes, no, because you're buying all these supplies and you have these shirts that are sitting in the corner that no one bought. I'm like, oh my God. I was just looking at revenue and not understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I think it's uh, Ronald Baker who writes about this and he says that revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. So I was really in the vanity metrics and I learned a lot about how to fail. And so the next time I went to create a business, um, I, I, I did learn from that lesson. Yeah, I bet. And it's interesting you say about it because I feel now that for entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, they get caught up on the, all the automation tools and getting zappier for this and that. Yeah. And, or they all add up, right? And suddenly yeah. they're $20 a month for this and five for that and 30 for this. And you get the first month free and you presume it's going to double yourself. And suddenly people have got as a, a, a new business, they've racked up a thousand, fifteen hundred pound in monthly um, recurring 
costs, yep. but they haven't got the points that are in there to, to get to that next stage. Mm-hmm. So what was the, the first one that went well? The first one went well after I graduated from college. Now I have real skills before it was just unskilled labor and I'm starting a design company. Now I have four years of training. I don't have business skills yet, but so 1995, I started this company called Blind. And initially I thought it was just a general design services company, but actually the thing that excited me most was making commercials. And so I decided, you know what, at that point we were designing websites. You need a logo. We'll do that. Anything you asked me to do, I would have done. Just get the jobs, make the money. Make the money, get anything. Uh, It's called like what market validation. I needed proof that what I was doing was valuable. I had the skills, but then I realized I'm not very good at anything. When someone asks us to do a website, I'm just floundering about. Okay. I make a video, I'm like, Ugh, I don't really know how to set the keyframes properly. I don't know all the technical specs. So I, I, I told my girlfriend and then later on my wife, I said, you know what? I'm really excited about motion design. I want to make commercials for a living. This is it. We're not going to do any other kind of client work. And that's the thing that carried me for 20 plus years. And in those 20 plus years, I worked with the biggest brands and the biggest agencies in the world from Nike to Microsoft, Xbox, Sony, Jaguar, Ford, everybody you can think of. I did over $80 million in revenue in those uh, 20 plus years. Amazing. I'd love to ask a, a couple of questions on that if I can. Mm-hmm. So when, when we're talking about the big companies, how was your, uh, what was your approach to get into the big companies? Was it just over time, your reputation got better? So it was easier or did you try and swing the bat nice and early and try and land yourself the whale client straight away? You know, that's a great question. As a 20, I think I was 23. Yeah, I was 23 at the time. I, I didn't even know that the concepts, that the questions you're asking me were even concepts in my head. <laughs> I had this this really naive idea that if I have a really good portfolio, and I believe I did, I graduated top of my class, and I had a little reputation in school that work would just find me. Mm. I didn't realize you have to go out there and you have to go get it. And so we sat around a lot like, I wonder why the phone's not ringing. Yeah, just sat there going, right, okay, I'll, I'll take all the calls today. Yeah. You take all the calls tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and, and no calls ever came. So I was like, what is going on? Now, I was quite fortunate because um, prior to graduating, I had worked as an art director at, at an ad agency. And so my friends from the agency, my former boss and my, my coworkers, they sent me some work. And some of my friends graduated before me and they also had friends in the, in the agency world. And so they gave me some work. Now this work, I just wanna just make clear to everybody, I got paid $500 to make a commercial. Yeah. And even by today's rate, that's this is nonsense, right? I, I worked on this thing for weeks and it was for a partnership for uh, Drug Free America. So it was a good cause, but they literally paid me 500 bucks and slept on the floor mining the renderings because back then the computing power was not very good. But eventually I realized, you know what? I have to, I have to go get a sales rep. I have to go find some clients. I have to do something. And so here's, here's how the story evolves. One of these women who was like dating a friend of mine from school, uh, she's like, I know somebody in advertising. And she was working for me as an office manager. So, and her name's Patricia. And I was like, Patricia, really? Like, you know someone in advertising? And she goes, yeah, let's go meet them. And I'm like, okay, portfolio in hand. I go to the agency. It's a small agency. And we meet this woman. Her name's Karen Costello. And I show her my portfolio. And Karen, I didn't know at that time, was like, just quickly rifling through the work. I showed her some things. She talked, it just asked me a few questions and it was kind of nonplus. It was like, whatever, 
you know, I, I left and then we got back in the car. I'm like, nothing will ever come of this. Well, here's the interesting thing. Uh, people aren't effusive when they're reviewing your portfolio and your work. They have an impression. They either like it or they don't, but they yeah. don't need to tell you, oh my God, you walk on water. This is amazing. I'm going to give you a job tomorrow. They don't usually do that. What happens is Karen is recruited, goes and works for a new agency, and they're starting to get some steam, some momentum. They are winning the business of a, of a major car manufacturer, and they're doing all this work. And so she reaches out to me six, seven, eight months later saying, hey, I need some help with this. Can you do this? Like, oh my God, that's the same Karen that we met who I yeah. thought hated our work. And one thing leads to another. They win the account and they grow. We grow with them. At one point, we were doing all the design and motion work for an entire ad agency. Every account they had, we were working on it. Mm. And so if you can cue the, uh, the, the money cannon, like shooting money all over in the sky, it was that moment. And there's a scene from Scarface, like when, when Al Pacino walks in the backyard and there's an airplane, it says, the world is your oyster. Yeah. That was kind of my Scarface moment. <laughs> when you're doing it in that business, you've come out, so you've finished, um, you've done your four years, you're setting up a business. Was the sales rep the first person you hired? I didn't have a sales rep. What um, was your first hire? My first hire was other designers. Okay. And, what and that happened almost immediately, right? Mm. The first person I brought in was my former uh, college roommate. And I'm like, I need help designing these logos. I have too much work to do. You want to help me? And he would do it. And I did this almost like a month after starting the company because I knew I had to go out there and find more work and I could manage the work. Uh, meaning people don't understand this. Like um, if you hold on to all the work and say to yourself, no one else can do this work as well as I can. And it could possibly be true. And then you will always do the work and you'll never go out and get the work and you can't manage, you can't steer the company. And so my, my former roommate, he does the work. Is he as good as I am? Probably not, but he got it to like 80%. And what I would do is through art direction and management say, you know, here's what I think you need to do, change these things. And he would do that. And sometimes he would get really close, but not exact. And that's when at night after he left, I would open his files, tweak them, and then send them off to the client. And in this way, you know, maybe we're not double the effort, but we're like 1.8. And that's a lot better than just 100%. So we're at 180%. Yeah, and also the extra bit of time that you're doing, and I talk to a lot of people about this when we're, you're outsourcing or you're going to hire, even if they're not going to do exactly the same as you, if you can go in and spend an hour on something they've done seven hours on, you're still getting seven hours worth of, like eight hours worth of work done in one hour. And I, I think a lot of people, they look for that fake mystery of perfection. And the sure. irony is huge, but people want to, they, I think people lie to themselves a lot and use it as a reason to hold themselves back. When actually, if, you're, if you've got a big vision for a company, even if it's not a big company, if you want to get 10 people, 10 designers, if you're, if you're only going to hire people that are as good as you, because you don't want to hire better than you, <laughs> people are only going to go up to that level, you're really going to hit a stumbling block from the start, aren't they? Yeah. A guy Kawasaki has a great talk on this. And he said things he learned from Steve Jobs. He said that A players hire A plus players. B players hire C players and C players hire D players, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like this weird thing. So if you want to be a great company, you have to actually hire people better than you. And it's scary. It's, it's a blow to your ego and you don't even know how to manage. And sometimes you can feel pretty insecure and insignificant. But for me, it was about like, you know what? Uh, I'm I'm using money for what it was meant for to buy back my time. 
the great Peter Drucker talks about this in, in his book, The Effective Executive. He says that your main obligation is to consolidate the largest amount of discretionary time. Because what's happening is we're scheduling meetings, we're doing little odds and ends, and it doesn't allow us to think. So he's like, you know what? Kill the meetings, pull together all of your free time and have the largest chunk possible so you can sit in your office and think about what you need to be doing. And it could be personal development, it could be vision planning, it could be making some critical sales calls or supervising or overseeing larger initiatives, but that's what you need to be doing. I very much agree. I was having a conversation with someone the other day, um, they're a solopreneur. They do nicely, but like, they, they've got a very nice lifestyle business and they're earning probably 13000 as a typical month, which is great for the amount that they work. And I said, have you ever looked at yourself as if you're an employee? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, have you ever sat and thought, would I hire myself mm-hmm. if you're in a job right now and you did the things you did every day would that change if you suddenly left your what you're doing now and you went and worked for a great company so say if i was a sales guy and i went and worked for you would my expectation of myself be different and i think a lot of the time people just know that they would they'd work a bit harder Salespeople would follow up a little bit better they wouldn't have the fear of rejection as much because it wouldn't be as personal and I, you must have seen similar in your own business right yeah, you know, I I love to just kind of uh, um, tag on to what you just said. Please do. There's a there's a survival test for all solopreneurs. Survival test number one: If you had to hire someone who could do the work that you're doing, would you have any profit? Mm. And the answer is no. It means you're not charging enough, or something is wrong with your business. Okay. And I really want you to think about that because oftentimes people say, "I can't hire someone to do this work." They're not, they're not good as me. It's because you can't <laughs> afford the people who are better than you. That's the mm. problem. And so that means you're underpricing market value. Okay, survival test number two. What happens, and, and sometimes people talk about this in bigger companies, it's called key man insurance or key person insurance, that if this person were not able to work anymore, would your entire business come crumbling down? And a lot of times people don't think this. They, they think I can work forever. I will always be healthy and nothing will ever happen to me. And they have people that depend on them. They might have a spouse or young children or an elderly parent that they need to take care of. And they think, fine, I'll just keep working. But what happens if you get sick? What happens if the proverbial, you get hit by a truck? What happens to your business? And most small businesses cannot survive without the key person still working and earning and doing billable hours. And so you can say like right now, okay, based on these two survival tests, one, I'm not charging enough. And two, this company does not survive the minute I stop working. That is a business that is very volatile and is ripe for all kinds of disruption or interruption. Mm. Someone gave me an analogy once and they said, it's like being in a boat and you're continuously having to bucket the water out. And if someone stops, it's going to go under. Is like that, that you? And I thought that's a horrible way to look at it, but it gives you a vision of going, okay. So if, uh, like in sales, if it, I, I talk to phone sales teams mainly, and about if you lose your voice, if you're going to go out, who would replace you? Well, I'd have to train someone. Okay, great. How would you train them? You can't talk. <laughs> and they go, right, okay, so maybe I should get some training, man. Yeah, that might be a good idea. We should maybe try and find someone so you can not necessarily make yourself of no use in your business, but if you've got a team of two or three people that can do, even on a small scale, what you can do, 
it allows you that flexibility. And I think that freedom people get as well, don't they? After the fear is yeah. gone, once you're free from your business, you get better ideas, bigger ideas, don't you think? Absolutely. And I want to talk about that. So Please do. I think... I think it's important for you to design yourself out of your business, for you to be obsolete in your own business, because now you're you're going to be able to float above the daily grind and all the fires that need to be put out because you have this incredible thing. It's called your imagination. It's your brain. And it is not working at its full potential if you're constantly dealing with one crisis after another. And so if you can free yourself up, now you have all this discretionary time for you to sit there and let that imagination go to work. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I go on vacation, when I'm bored out of my mind and my wife's like, don't bring your work with you. I'm like, I got it, honey. And a couple of days into it, I'm like, what am I doing here? And I start Speaking to ask the laptop like, <laughs> right? What am I doing here? Like, what is the meaning of my life? What is it that we're not seeing? What are blind spots? that may disrupt our business? What are opportunities that we're not seeing? And usually I come back and it's very dangerous because after I have an extended period off and it doesn't take that long to get to this state, I come back with crazy ideas and I tell my team, hey, there's this initiative. I think there's half a million dollars if we do this right, let's try it. And so everybody always is a little nervous when Chris goes on vacation because I'm like, People book the day off when you come back. <laughs> <laughs> when I come back, it's like, okay, you know what? Uh, I don't think you have a job here anymore and you, you're getting a promotion. These are three initiatives and we're killing those two other things because I have that clarity. Mm. And I find it interesting this time of year, and I don't know whether you have much of this as well. The amount of people, we're both on Clubhouse. I talk to a lot of people on Clubhouse. But over a Christmas period, a lot of people took that time off. And a lot of people have suddenly realized how much the hamster wheel speed was reliant on or keeping their motivation on a daily basis and suddenly stopping. They're like, what now? What do I do? I'm not as interactive. I'm not interacting with as many people as I thought. I wasn't thinking about my business. I didn't have a plan. They're just moving through that day to day almost riding the emotions of other people as a distraction, I think. Um, I mean, you spend quite a lot, like well, not a lot. I see you um, quite a bit on places like Clubhouse, social media. Do you cap a certain amount of time that you're on there? Are you pretty good with your time anyway? Is it an effort for you to, to do that? Um, it, it, this answer would be different depending on if you ask my wife or if you ask me, so I'll answer <laughs> it's myself first. Yes. And the answer is it is actually my business to be on the different platforms because I'm a content creator and I'm building mm -hmm. influence through the things that I'm doing. So if I'm not creating, I'm listening, I'm learning, I'm watching, I'm analyzing. This is what I do. It's one of my secret powers is the ability to analyze and make connections where other people don't see them. And so I, I don't have to monitor it. Like literally one of the first things I do, and I know this is probably some people are going to be like, I can't believe he's doing this. One of the first things I do is I spend 30 to 45 minutes every morning going through and reading all the comments that I can on every platform that I'm on. Really? From LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, because I'm trying to get a pulse of what people are reacting to. Mm. My team and I, we create so much content. I'm like, you know what? Communication isn't you speaking in one direction, unidirectional, it's bi-directional. And in some ways it's asynchronous. So I have to be there to catch the comments when, it come when they come back. 
And often you learn the most, not from the people who love your content, but from the people who are angry about it, who are unclear. And you, you sometimes confuse that as a personal attack. It's actually a cry for help. Like, help me understand this concept because it's very confusing. They don't say it like that. They say, dummy, this is the dumbest video I've ever seen. Mm. Like, why is he saying, why are they saying this? Hmm. I had a Maybe. client start recently based off of that. He had a, he put a huffy message about, and I said, I, I met up to me, Emma, I said, like, I always send voice notes. And I said to him, I can appreciate the fact if you weren't engaged and you unfollowed me. That's normal. But to send the message you said, and I won't say what he said, I feel like something bad has gone on before. And now you feel like you're getting drawn to what we do here and you don't like that yet. And he's like, I don't need to hear this from you. And I just left him a couple of days later. Yes, you're right. This happened, <laughs> this happened. And actually yeah. he was trying to, the anger he was putting out was him trying to hold the door shut because he actually wanted to, he was holding himself from walking through the door. Yeah. Because he was being drawn in. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, it's all good. You touched on a pain point that they felt and, and what people don't understand. And I've learned this through uh, my business coach for um, over 13 years is people do not react to what's happening. They react to the past. We're stuck in the past. So when you meet someone new, you're dating somebody and they do something that you're like, that is so freaking annoying. It's probably because your mom or your dad or your brother or sister yeah. was pestering you about this in a time in your life where you had no control. So now when some other adult in your life exhibits the same traits or actions, however small, you're bringing in 20 plus years of history and you're over responding. Your response is not proportionate to the, the things that are said or the things that are done. And so we kind of just constantly remind ourselves like, what am I really reacting to right now? Mm. Have you ever seen the film Limitless? I might have. Where he takes the tablet and it opens up yes. all of the new... And the guy, so he, uh, uh, I can't remember what his name is, the actor, but he's took the tablet so he's opened up his mind and he, the, the land, he's late on his rent and he's coming up the stairs and the partner's having a go about it. And he said, you can hear him thinking out. He's like, you're angry, but this is far too high a level of anger for just me missing the rent. There's something more here. And it's so true that the reactions that we see from people instant for most people is to resist or to react fire with fire. And actually we, we learn quite a lot when we take back time to really listen. So what yeah. does your wife think about the, the, the side? We, we best hear what, what her opinion is. Yes, my, my wife simultaneously appreciates the, the kind of crazy life that I have and how it affords everything that we have. And she also is kind of mildly annoyed, like how what's the limit? What are the boundaries of mm. this, right? And it, it it's more complicated now because I'm at home and I've been at home for two years, right? And so she sees everything, whereas most of the time... <laughs> I'm going to get dressed. I'm jumping in the car and you don't yeah. see me for eight, eight hours or I come home and then, and then there's life. But in the day from, from the time in which I wake up into the time we have dinner, she's seeing all kinds of interactions. I'm talking to people. I'm responding to stuff. She's like, why are you always on the phone? And I turned to her. It's like, this is how we eat. This is how yes. rent is paid. You, do you do understand that this is how I make a living? And she's like, Oh, okay. So I, I think she's, like 95% good with it. And there's the 5% that is, I think, mostly emotional where your irrational brain says, no, I, I want you to be here right now, not to mm -hmm. do anything else. And I say, okay, well, I can unschedule everything and we, I can just sit here. No <laughs> with, with, um, 
outside of the fact that we're talking here about your wife, but that general thing, when we see people, friends, family, what do you think about a lot of people that, so for example, one of my friends works with his hands. He's great. He's a carpenter. He's great at what he does. He's like, all you do is talk to people and it is, you, you can hear it. And he, he's like, you're always on your phone. You're always just saying little, so I live on, but I must send a hundred, 120 voice notes a day. He said, all you do is we're walking down the road, blah, 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 blah. He's like, this is all you do. Blah. And I said to him, I said, is it a fact that I'm always on my phone or does it annoy you that I could sit in a coffee shop all day and talk on my phone? He said, yeah. He said, it's that as well. He said, I can't get in my head. He said, I get a bit of wood. I spend all my experience, my blood, my sweat, my tears to do that with precision. And then someone gives me money for my hard work. I said, yeah, but the words we talk go into people's heads and it alters paths and it talks to them, it guides them or teaches them. And he's like, yeah, but I, and he was very much the same. He said, yeah, but apart from carpentry, I hated school. I said, exactly. I said, so you're associating me with our teachers, but you didn't enjoy anyway. And now you're thinking, well, how are my friends doing it and doing it well? And I'm fascinated. Do you think that's also part of it where people just see us talking? Or do you think it's just a fact of how much we do, if that makes sense? Very long-winded way of going about that. It's probably a little bit of both. Mm. I think your friend who is an amazing carpenter, I I admire people who have any skill set, making carpentry, laying roofs, digging ditches. I don't care. If you do something with passion and you're good at it, I admire you for it because there's nobility in even doing the the humblest of things. The thing about this is we're we're moving through technological advances faster than we can adapt as a society and as a culture. So not that long ago, we were farmers and we worked with our hands and it was hard work and that was was noble. And now there's a lot of intellectual and creative work that, that for thousands of years, we didn't have the luxury to be able to do. But as societies are getting richer and we're able to uh, eat food that, that just appears before us and all these kinds of wonderful technological advances, I think there is an older mentality that, say, that says, this is valuable. And since I don't understand what you do, what you do is not valuable. But in your description of what your friend describes, if you just change one or two words, it's quite literally what you do. He says, I take all of my experience. I use my hands to make something all day long that creates value for other people. Let's just say that a little bit differently. David, you take all of your experience and you use your mind and your mouth to solve other people's problems to create value for them. It is really not different at all. And so one of the things that we do is we have a lot of confirmation bias. I mean, humans in general have a ton of bias. Uh, Some of it is good and some of it, most of it is bad, which we say, well, I see people who do what I do. And so I think that's valuable. So anything that doesn't fit within a neat little box is therefore not valuable. And it's really annoying. They can't understand that. Just as if you're like, you know what? I don't understand you. You're in the shop, dust in your eyes, your nose and your lungs all day long. I don't see how you could carry on like that. Mm. And he's saying the exact same thing about you in the coffee shop, talking to people on the phone or meeting new people because this is your gift. I think what we all need to do is to take one giant step back and say, you know what? Each person is allowed to express themselves in ways However that they, they feel will. congruent to who they are. Who am I? Who are you to judge others to, that do things that we don't understand? 
you know, Picasso, like almost all artists, they create things that have low utility value, very low. A painting from Picasso will not save you when you're drowning in a boat. <laughs> yeah. If it a zombie apocalypse you, comes, it's not going to be a It, it use. won't do anything for you. But the value in which we place on a Picasso painting in terms of how it makes us feel about the world is very different and not any more or less valuable than anything else. And so what we have to do is we have to check our bias at the door and just say, you know what? Who am I to tell you what is good and valuable? Mm. And I'll tell you what, anyone who can, do you know what I always get amazed by? People who build, like things like you know, the surround units that go around TVs. <laughs> Stuff like that. And they just go, they turn up with just what looks like me, just, it just makes sense. Cause I'm like, okay, you've just got basically three types of wood, a few different lengths, a hammer, a few tools, and a saw. And then I come back the next day when you know it's, it's half done, and you're like, that doesn't look good. And you go back the next day when it's finished, and you're like, I can't even see how that went together. And I watched you do half of it. And I have such admiration for anyone that can do that. I genuinely do. Um, so, anyone who's listening to this now, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, sales directors, sales managers, business owners, if you drop into a business and they say, hey, Christo, here's a big bag of cash. I need you to come in for the day. And can you help us find a floor? It, is there a set area that you would typically think or from your experience that you know from people you've known or businesses you've worked with or just experiences in, in life in general? Is there a certain place that you normally would go to as your go-to place? Or say you inherited a company. Would there be a set place you would go to first to find those blind spots or just think, okay, well, there's normally going to be a leaking tap in there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's um, finding the overlap of two things. And in that overlap is your opportunity. The first sphere is what are, what are our core competencies? What, what do we have that are strengths and, and, and things that other people don't have? Is it the team? Is it a system? Is it tools and technology? Is it access to resources? Is it a location? And it can be multiple things mapped on multiple dimensions. What is it? Okay. So, and then we look at what customer can we serve? What customer has an unmet need that if solved can be valuable to them and then therefore us? Our business is to create a customer. And so we overlap our skills with this customer's needs. And we're in that sweet spot. If we're able to deliver on that in in ways that are a little bit better than everyone else, a little bit faster, or with greater degrees of customer service, I think we can start to dominate a market. And then what we do is we test the hypothesis over and over again, because all it is, is a hypothesis. We have a hunch that people in this space need or want this thing. So we build a minimum viable product or service, and we keep iterating on that to validate whether or not it is a good thing or not. And then when we find that thing, we clear the table and we say, we don't do anything else, this is what we do. I love it. I, I genuinely can listen to you all day. I find that the, the way that you map out conversations, it makes me work harder on me, which I like. I think that's a great thing. So if you've got people now, say someone's thinking about going out there, they've worked out where they can go out and they can add value. They could set up a company or a product as a solopreneur. 
What do you think the, t- the core skills that people need? I talk to people about sales. I'm very biased because it's what I deal with. But what would you say from a big sky thinking side that you're used to are the main things that people maybe overlook when they're going out to, to market? This is a really big question. And I'm going to try to answer this uh, in a slightly different way. And sure. let me know if I, I'm able no, to no, address no. this. Right? I'm happy just to, to let you fly with it. Yeah. So... I have two boys. One is 18 and one is 15. And when they were much younger, my wife and I- You don't look old down. enough to have an 18-year-old kid. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost 50. I'm, I'm just holding Are you on really? to 49. Yes. Yes. I even had kids a little bit later. So anyways, so my wife and I, when our, our boys were much younger, we asked ourselves these kinds of questions because I am uh, such, I'm so vocal about like how our education system is totally and wholly efficient at doing the wrong things. And as a person who, who, who was a teacher for 15 years and one who does this online and I'm trying to change the system in air quotes, what is it that we want our children to do? Because aren't we subjecting them to the same system that I'm railing against? And so we sat back, we started talking about what are the three most valuable skills that are going to be needed in the 21st century? And what can we do to prepare our children for this? And the number one thing we thought about was communication, the ability to articulate your thinking through whatever means that you feel is most natural to you. Now, most people, when they hear articulate, they think speaking and using words is a very important way of communication, but it could be through music. It could Mm. be through poetry. It could be through sculpture. It could be through paint on a canvas. You need to be able to communicate your thinking so that other people on the other end can understand what it is that you're saying. The, the, the communication loop has to be complete. You send a signal out, a receiver hears it, they send a signal back to confirm this is indeed what was said and heard. This is really important. So if you think about all the courses that you've had up until college, all through high school, how many courses prepared you to be good at communication? either in speaking or in art, poetry, or music, to be able to express your thinking. At least here in America, not many. Mm. We're taught to remember things, to be able to recite facts in a very short-term way. And this is now currently replaced by a device everyone has today. It's your smartphone. The need to memorize things is completely obsolete. So anybody that's in any kind of business needs to be great at communication. And if you study and you look at the great CEOs that run visionary companies that are worth billions and billions of dollars, they're really good at communicating because they're able to communicate to their shareholders, to their investors, and to their team what the big vision is. And so they believe what they believe. And you can build powerful companies and tribes of people internally and externally if you can communicate what it is that you're trying to do. And you just, in the very beginning of our our episode together, You said, Chris, you're on this really big mission, which is to teach a billion people. See, so when I was able to formulate what it is I'm trying to do with my life, other people start to understand that. And they either say, I'm with you or I'm against you. Mm. And I want it to be that clear. You've walked into countless of companies, I'm sure, where they have some grandiose mission statement on the wall, which when you boil it down means nothing. Yeah. Sometimes we're guilty of writing them ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no stones thrown here, but that's the problem. So we are, if we're successful, we will 
disrupt the education system from um, graduate school on down. That's the mission. We have to change the way we teach people so that it's more effective, it's more equitable for the teachers and the students and more accessible by everyone because that's going to be the greatest driver of leveling the playing field. Now, we can't control what humans do and how they're motivated, but we can at least say you were given access to the tools. The rest is on you. Yes. So I think communication is one of the biggest things. And then the next one is the ability to learn. And this seems weird, right? So you have to have um, critical thinking skills to be able to discern from multiple pieces of information, multiple sources, a book, a podcast, a video, an article, blog post, something like that, and to be able to evaluate what is true, what is real, given the set of data that you have. Mm. Here in America, there's a lot of controversy over uh, uh, was the election stolen? Uh, is our vaccines good and safe? And there, uh, sadly, I, I'm going to say probably something that's going to give me a little trouble. There are really a, a lot of low-level thinking going on. We get really emotional about what it is that we want the world to be like, and we ignore just straight logical thinking. And a lot of these conversations happen on Clubhouse. And it's ridiculous because some of these rooms are the most popular rooms. And I'm almost shocked at how, how ignorant people are. Why do you think, do you think that's just because the generations before were used to not having, we're, we're like kings of our own castles now, aren't we? I think so. Where I don't think that's always been the case. People worked in a factory, you got to shut up or get out type of mentality. And I, I wonder whether a lot of the way that people are now, is it just where it's hereditary and people are unaware or is it the fact that people are scared to know? I'm, I don't know. I have some suspicions about this. Um, I, I can't remember where I read this, but it was said that in the 20th century, uh, so the 1900s, right, that the average person basically had the knowledge of one newspaper front to back. Right. And that was it. That's as much as information as an educated person had. And that's pretty shocking compared to what we have access to today. Yes, massively. So our brains are capable of so much, yet, you know, we're, we're probably getting too much information. There's such a thing as too much of a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so now we're a little bit confused. And there is a lot that we, uh, I, I saw comedians who talk about this and, and we, we laugh at people who are like into like Scientology or into some, some alien religion, right? And we, we hear these fairy tales and yet they just turned around and said, well, let me tell you about this person who gave birth, who was a virgin you know, <laughs> of the Holy Spirit, who then like was born in a stable during winter and walked on water and turned water into wine. Like we would not believe that story. We would laugh at that. But the reason why we don't is because culturally when we grew up, this is the story that we told ourselves that is true. Mm. And, and it's based on, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, very little uh, verifiable fact. That's why this. it's called faith. Yes. You just have to have faith. Like Faith says, put your logic and reasoning aside and just believe. Mm. And to belong to our community, to our culture, to our tribe, you must believe what we believe. I and find so for me. Go, go ahead. on, sorry. 
I, I, I watched an interview with Ricky Gervais for Comedian before. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he was talking about religions and he was talking yeah, something I think that like, was him who said this. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he, he was a lot, I'm the butcher, but he was along the lines of, he was talking to this guy's religious. And he's like, how many religions are there? How many gods are there apparently in the world? And they were like, whatever, 600. And he's like, how many do you believe? He said, one. He's like, I only believe in one less than you. He said, if you can believe that all of those others are wrong and you believe in one. <laughs> and he's like, I believe in one less. Now, I, I'm fully happy for, if people believe in what they believe, I'm over the moon for people. Like, I, I, think, I think the saddest thing is people that believe in nothing at all. Like, they just bumble along. Um, and I, I think it's great to hear. Sorry, I did interrupt when you were saying that. No, no, that, I, I love that. And I, and it's probably his bit that I was like listening to about these different religions, about how crazy this is, right? So we think about things intellectually detached from our expectations, from our history and, and, and customs. All of a sudden, we can start to see things really clearly. I was talking with a friend of mine who I've known for a couple of years now, and he said this to me. He said, Chris, um, I, I need some help with my business. And in a very short amount of time, we we're able to resolve it. And he was kind of in awe. And he said, how is it that it was so unclear to me until you said it and it became so crystal clear? How is it that you have the ability to see this? And I said, well, simply, Mo, um, I don't have the attachment that you have. Mm. I don't have all that cognitive bias that you carry with you. And I'm constantly asking myself, why do I believe this? And what evidence do I have that this is true? And generally speaking, you believe a lot of things that you have zero evidence for. And sometimes when I would do workshop or do public speaking, I'll say, what are you certain about? Like, are you certain about who your parents are? Uh, Like where you were born? You know, how old you are? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, have you ever looked at your birth certificate? Silence. Did you go and revisit the hospital? So we just assume a lot and we just take it for granted that we are who we are. And that's why some children who are adopted, when their parents tell them, it creates such a schism in their mind because their reality has been torn wide open yeah. and they can't handle this. So we, we, we run on a lot of beliefs that are not verifiable and it's okay because otherwise our head would split open, right? And so when we, when we see something, when we think something and we behave a certain way and we don't like the results that we're getting, if we just remember that it was a bunch of stories that we told ourselves that got us here, we can just tell ourselves a new story. We can have a new belief and your mind can expand that way. I really like this conversation. And anyone who's watching this and listening, if you're not following Chris, go and follow him because this is a great conversation, but this is not a unique conversation. Whenever I hear Chris talk, I listen in on you talk with Clubhouse and on social media. And the perspective, I'm always very big about, I know my perspective wasn't the widest as I grew up. I was fairly ignorant to a lot of things. And I'm very much now, I want to make sure that I'm being a good example to my kids. My kids are 11 and 7. And I want to make sure that I'm an example to them so that it's not, I want to be the pattern interrupt from, from the family tree. And listening to people like yourself and anyone who's watching this now, make sure you're going off and hearing other people's ideas. I, I always sit and listen to people talk about religion. Got no problem with it. I don't think people are trying to brainwash me, but I think there's an element when people are talking about brainwashing and they freak out. I'm like, mm, we need to establish, do I want the brain that I've got right now, the thoughts I've got, the beliefs I've got, or actually could it do with a bit of a wash? 
Not brainwashing convinced me to do horrible thing, but actually I think we could do with washing away some of the, the, the stuff, especially the limiting beliefs that we've got, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, when we look at a lot of people out there, it's very easy to see what other people are doing wrong, but it's so hard to look at ourselves. How do you do that for you? I know you said you've got um, your own coach, which I'm not at all surprised by, but do you rely on the coaches? Do you find... There's certain things that you're good at developing with yourself and other areas that you struggle and almost have a bit of a blind side with, or how do you work with that? A wonderful question. I also want to say something that um, I don't think most of us are born enlightened. We go through a period of ignorance and acceptance and we don't question things. And eventually, hopefully one day that switch uh, on that light bulb turns on and you're like, wait a minute, I, I need to check myself here. Where does all this come from? <laughs> like I grew up uh, in a devout Catholic household where my really? grandmother, yeah, literally we would pray every night for what seemed like an hour and a half every night. And and then on the weekends, if you didn't go to church on Sunday, she would harass every one of her children. And she would say, where, well, I didn't see you at church. And then you'd have to make an excuse like, oh, I went a different time. And and I, I, I went to Bible school. I, I did the whole thing, right? And then throughout... Uh, high school, I started to investigate other religions, uh, Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I, I looked at Christianity. I'm just exploring. And every time I would ask enough questions, people were stuck. They were just totally stuck. And my logical kind of philosophical curiosity were, was met with a dead end almost every single time. So at some point I'm thinking, you all believe that of all, like you said, of all the gods that exist, everyone is wrong except for you. And if God exists, then a lot of people are screwed because a lot of them are praying to the wrong God. <laughs> so true. Right. And so this kind of curiosity keeps, you just keep asking more and more questions. But the, the way that I'm able to start to examine my own thoughts, and a lot of people say, well, are you religious? No. Um, are you spiritual? I'm like, I don't think so. Uh, do you meditate? I'm like, no, I don't think so either. But I was listening to this, this guy, he was a Westerner. He decided to drop out of society and become a monk. He gave a TED Talk about this, and he disappeared for several years. And he emerged, and he said, you know, a lot of people think meditation is the purging of all thoughts to be mm. nothing. He goes, it's not that at all. And his explanation, or the one that I got from it, was really interesting. It was, the, the way I can understand it, is for you to be a witness to your own thinking, for you mm. to feel all that you feel, for you to think all that you think, but to have a layer outside of that to be able to see like, oh, I'm feeling angry. And why am I feeling angry? What is it that I want? Is it warranted in this situation? What is it I'm really responding to? And I think the more enlightened you are, the more witnesses you actually have. And so this is going to get a little weird for a second. No, I like it. Right? So imagine that you can see into your own brain, into your own process, and then as a witness, there's another witness witnessing the witness. So I think it, some of these shaman, uh, shaman gurus that are really spiritual have been able to go multiple layers deeper into their own brain and see what they see as they're seeing what they're seeing. And for me, a lot of my thinking comes from, why, why do I think this? Why does this person say this? Where is this coming from? And I want to take in more than just what is being said. I want to make those observations. And if I'm acting in a way that is habitual, just reactionary, uh, I need to check in with myself. 
So I find fascinating with it as well. When we talk to a lot of people, when people hear, and this is for anyone listening in on this, if you're at a stage in your life where you're, you start to question things, especially in the school years, that gets knocked out a lot of people, right? Conform. <laughs> Put your hand up if you've got a question. Be quiet. I've had enough from you. And all of that type of stuff. And I think when we are used to not thinking, when we do start to think, and if we're surrounded by people that don't, actively do it you can feel like you're a bit of a madman or madwoman however you identify right because suddenly not only are you doing something different from everyone else but you're talking about yourself in a third person almost well you are about well why am i doing this and why and questioning yourself which, which can feel alien and i think if we all spent a bit more time not being judgmental on ourselves, but reviewing our actions and reviewing our thoughts. It, it, for me, I, I started journaling. Didn't really get into it, tried it. But again, I've ticked it off the box. That didn't work for me. I found windsurfing is like my best form of meditation because for me, it gives me a singular focus. It clears my mind. And when I come back in, I spend a good 15 minutes where I'm so drained <laughs> But I do nothing, but I really take the time and I just seem to get complete clarity about what I've been thinking recently. And I'm too tired to almost argue with myself. And I find that I, it's almost therapeutic. And I think we should all spend a bit more time with that, right? Yeah, I think certain types of physical activity, and it doesn't have to be as extreme as windsurfing, a, a good vigorous walk will do that for you, where you start to become aware of your breathing, your heart, your body, how your feet strikes the ground, and you feel the air against your skin and you just kind of quiet your thoughts so you can actually understand what is happening inside your brain. And I think you, windsurfing, surfers talk about this all the time. You are very much doing something that could potentially end your life. And you have to have a healthy respect for the ocean because it's much more powerful than you. Mm. If you don't pay attention, bad things can happen. And so you're, you're at one point, your, your senses are heightened, but at the same time, you enter into some kind of autonomic state that allows you to kind of float between your active learning brain and your uh, inactive archival brain. And I find that the sweet spot is right in between those two things. It's also why many people credit and cite when they're in the shower or when they're driving or doing or washing the dishes that they have their best ideas. Yes. It's because we're not awake fully and we're not quite asleep. It's kind of some kind of self-induced hypnosis. And I think it's really neat. Um, I want to touch on something that you said that we think that people are a little little bit crazy or a little egotistical when they use the word we when it's only just them, when they speak in the third person. I used to think that too, but I want to cite two things. Number one is oftentimes when you see a boxer, because I'm really into mixed martial arts as a, as a, as a fan, not as a practitioner, mm. but when they give them the mic after they win, they talk in the third person. We worked really hard. We knew what he was going to do. We were prepared for all situations. I'm like, it's just you, bro. Just say I. But then what, what I started to understand and appreciate later is there's a massive team behind each person who becomes yes. a champion, a coach, a nutritionist, uh, sparring partners. Uh, you have striking coaches. You have grappling coaches. Yeah, you the have pad all, man, the cut man. Every, everybody. And so, you know, when, when grown men lose or win in the ring and there's an outpouring of emotion, it's not because they're crying because they're sad they didn't get their hand raised. They're crying because they felt like they let a whole group of people down, mm -hmm. the people who believed in them. And I think we're comfortable letting ourselves down 
But when we let others who really believe in us, who love and support us, it is probably one of the most painful things to feel. And so they're just letting that out. Another person, I, I think it was on Clubhouse, <clears throat> In, in one of these mental health rooms, they actually said referring to yourself in the third person is an actual way to start to get some separation <clears throat> between how you feel and how you're witnessing yourself. So it's actually a really helpful thing to try. So <clears throat> if this turns you on, try it out and see how it changes your, your mindset and your attitude. I, I, I think we should be trying more stuff. Everyone's very quick to say, I am. I live outside my comfort zone. That's where all the good growth happens. And you're like, okay, well, what do you do when you're uncomfortable? And you see them when something bad happens. And we're all guilty of it at times. The pressure gets to us. We crack. We go for a nap in the afternoon. And I want to forget about today. But we're in that uncomfortable place. And I think we, we've got to learn what to do in those times rather than trying to run away from Chris. Absolutely. And I agree with you that a lot of people we hang on to these expressions and sayings and mantras because it makes us feel good. It reaffirms uh, our own mental image of who we are. But in reality, we don't live the words that we say. So those things about uh, the magic happens outside your comfort zone, all you have to do is it's very easy to test this kind of thing. Tell me what you want. And and because I do some coaching, right? Tell me what you want. And they tell you what they want. And it's like, why can't you get that? And they tell you the problem. And what are you willing to do? It's different than what you're doing today. Mm. And like, uh, I don't really. So then they start making up all the excuses. Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll do uncomfortable stuff. Just not that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'll never work. What evidence do you have? This I tried that work? once. <laughs> yeah. Tell me three people. What, you know, what article? Cite a Harvard peer-reviewed paper that said, I guess you don't want that. And they're like, well, what kind of, here's the question I love. What kind of guarantees do you have that this will work? I love that question. I said, you know. I don't have any guarantees that'll work, but I have one guarantee. If, if you stay the work. same, <laughs> yeah. nothing will change. That that expression, nothing changes if nothing changes. Chris, can I say today has been an absolute pleasure. Genuinely, you've realigned my brain. I've enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure everyone on here um, has took plenty away from this and we'll be watching it back again, which is great for me on the podcast, especially. Um, Chris, if people want to come and find you, if they want to know more, where's the best place to come and find you? Tell us about it. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you very much, David. I really enjoyed the conversation. I love where it went. I love how you responded to the conversation and not just go down a list of 10 questions, which to me are okay, but they're the most boring kind of interview. I have a, I have a, I've got a lot of questions. I didn't even go into them, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, I, you're just in the flow. We're just <laughs> yeah, having I love it. a conversation between two humans, right? Uh, if people want to find out more about me, I try to make it really easy. I'm on a, almost every social platform that you can find and I'm at the Chris Doe. The Doe is spelled D-O. That's it. I love it. Thank you so much. Um, ladies, gents, wherever you are in the world, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you. Go and check out Chris. And honestly, one of the most impressive people out there. Um, and I really, really appreciate uh, you coming on today. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, like, Follow, subscribe, rate and review and join me again on the next edition of the Sales Masters Podcast.